Hello, I'm Karen Hall, and welcome to PE for Musicians, where I invite you to take a look with me at proven ways we can decrease physical and mental stress and pain in our music practice by adopting the same techniques used in successful sports training to increase our joy and artistic ability. This week I sat down with Karen Elaine, a talented violist with a diverse field of interests and accomplishments. From kickboxing and scuba diving to music world tours and concert soloist performances, Karen exudes knowledge and enthusiasm for all of her passions equally, and it's no surprise she has met with success in each of her fields. Her most recent endeavor, I Am, an acronym that stands for Acro Yoga and Music, involves combining the dance and partnering of Acro Yoga with her music performance, and it is incredible to witness. Lastly, if you've been enjoying these podcasts, learning beneficial information, or find the topics relevant to yourself and other music educators, please share. The best advertising is always a personal referral, and I ask you to consider taking a moment to subscribe, leave a review, or share the links on your social media pages. That way, the information can move up the algorithm and reach a larger audience. For show notes on what you heard today, please head to pe4musicians.com and enjoy. Karen, how old were you when you began studying music? I was what is considered a late starter. I, I got my real start at ten and a half <laughs> and pounded the music into myself because I loved it so much, like the pounding on the roof going on above us. Um, I actually had a false start in fourth grade, which uh, would have been eight years old. Uh, I in the public music uh, public school system in California, we used to have free music program. And a girlfriend of mine said, Karen, let's play violin together. And so we picked up the violin. And three months later, I'd left my violin on the school bus. And my father said that, Karen, this is the end of your music career. And he was very upset. And I, I was very embarrassed and hurt and was determined to prove my dad wrong. So I got another start, 10 and a half, and I kept it going that time. Did you start with... Uh or did you restart with violin, or was that when you switched to viola? And I restarted with violin. Um, this second time, I was taking private lessons and um, went through a couple of different music teachers at the first year that I was playing. I was in a uh, really fabulous music program in San Diego that was run by a retired music teacher named Maudlin Kelly from Chicago. And this older black woman um, was the a big reason for me being comfortable in the classical music world. It was a normalizing of seeing people of color playing classical music. The entire youth orchestra were black children in the ghetto of San Diego, southeast San Diego. And so it was normal to see everybody working on their scales. <laughs> In, in, with the in, industrial and, and city noise in the background like we have here, um, making music. I, I, I played the, the Handel Messiah on, on violin when I was within a, a year of, of picking up the instrument, which was quite stressful at that time, as I remember. Now it's one of my favorite pieces, of course. Um, but that was... That was the beginnings of my, my 
getting involved in music and I got private lessons at that time. The, the violin instructor that I settled in with was Shigeko Sasaki, who is still in the first violin section of San Diego Symphony. And I studied with her all the way through uh, elementary, junior high, high school. And in the period of time that I was studying with her, I picked up viola at public school. When I was in junior high school, the music director turned to the violin section. We were about 20 violins strong and three violas. And it was the stereotypical viola section where they're kind of leaning to the side and drooling up. <laughs> you know, the kids couldn't play at all. And at that time, I was in seventh grade and it was junior high, not middle school, so seventh, eighth, ninth grade. And I was assistant principal second violin which was a really big deal for, you know, seventh grader. But the ninth graders, you know, they were in the first violin section. And I did the math, and I knew, because we all knew who each other's private teachers were, what concertos everyone was studying at the time. And, and I knew it wasn't going to be until ninth grade that I'd be concertmaster if I got that far. And I wanted to sit principal. I just had that kind of aggressive element to myself my being and and I, I I looked over there and I figured hey I could do a lot better <laughs> I, I want to be principal viola and I volunteered and I got a school instrument that I got to take home and work on I um, was given a book by my music director Mr. Dennis Foster who was a trombone player um, uh, to learn how to read alto clef it was called the string builder by Samuel Applebaum and what's magical about this, oh boy, I'm going to start crying here. <laughs> Let me try and get it together. Years later, I um, got into Curtis Institute um, I, on viola. And my, my professor was Michael Tree, son of Samuel Applebaum. And at my first lesson, it just so happened that Michael got a call from his dad just to chit-chat. And... And I said, oh my God, that's how I learned to play. And Michael said, would you like to talk to my dad? And he put him on the phone and it was just so magical. Last week, Michael Tree died. He had a wonderful long life, but he was a huge inspiration for me. So there we have it. Yeah, <laughs> That was my start. No, it's beautiful. And uh, it's wonderful how, how much early teachers can, can impact us and... Um, how small even the music community really is the longer you stay in it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to shift to something a little more practical, which is that it sounds like you practiced a lot and worked really hard. Did you ever have any like injuries that sort of flared up as a result of this aggressive ambition to be principal and to get into Curtis and all these other things? Well, my, my um, approach, my start with music was unusual. You were you were saying just a moment ago that that some of the mindset and approach to the instrument, memories on the instrument, were set from when you were five. I didn't start playing the instrument really until I was ten and a half. That early part of my life was filled with doing various kinds of sports. My dad was a very athletic man. He was a retired Navy man and was a big wave surfer, which Again, in the black community in, in the 60s, that would have looked very, been very unusual. But just my whole life experience was this is the normal thing. You know, you go out and you surf. And I, I discovered as I 
went through life that, well, in some cases it's not the norm. It's not normal to have, you know, little kids who are black who are doing competitive swimming in the ocean. <laughs> but I, you know, that sort of thing didn't, didn't really phase me or bother me or hinder uh, my, my interests and my passions. So as a little kid, I was, uh, one of my heroes was Mark Spitz. I grew up watching um, 72 Olympics and him doing all of his wins. And I was at that time in a, um, again, an all black um, swim team in Southeast San Diego where my older brother and younger sister were members of the team as well. And doing swimming was a regular part of my family growing up life. I grew up with a swimming pool in the backyard and my dad taught me how to do uh, breath hold swimming and and so that that was a natural segue to when I eventually became a scuba diver. Um, and just having comfort in the water and using using one's body in, in, in a variety of different ways. I've also done a, a, a tremendous amount of, of running. I've run several marathons, and I, um, in the course of my work, when I was an adjunct professor at San Diego State, I collaborated with the composers there, and one of the composers was dating the head of the dance department, and he was setting pieces to her dancers and wrote a piece for me to play. And with the choreography, I was inspired to take dance class because I didn't know the, the cues and the terms for the dance movements. Like when she does this plie or when she does the grand jeté, that's when we change the tempo or what have you. I needed to know that and I wanted to get into my body so I could understand these cues and trans, trans, transitions. And so that's when I, I took my... Um, understanding and took myself into the art in a different way, taking modern dance class. And, and so I've always uh, related to my instrument as something that I have to cross-train with, which is what all serious athletes do. I also had a brief period of time when I was just out of school at Curtis. Um, I left school early to take a job in Detroit. And now going from San Diego to Boston, New England Conservatory is where I went for my first year of college. And then I transferred after that year to Curtis and eventually graduated from Curtis. Um, first year of college was the first time in my life I saw snow. And it was shocking. And I was used to going out and get exercising year-round and moving my body. Well, I seriously had that freshman 40, that first year in Boston. I, I gained weight like so crazy. And at the end of the year, I joined the nearby Y and swam a mile a day and worked it all off. That's, I'm blessed with the ability to be able to do that because we know lots of people who can't just jump on the treadmill and take care of business. And I love to exercise anyway. But I was determined when I left Curtis for this job in Detroit that I wasn't going to allow myself to be in another snowy area and just eat my way through winter. <laughs> I wanted to stay fit and active and keep my weight under control. And so I joined the gym and um, got into free weight lifting, which my body took to very easily. And um, started. I always was interested in Muscle and Fitness magazine. Started following a girl named Jackie Paisley, who was a cello player. Studied with Orlando Cole at Curtis, and 
uh, left Curtis to um, U of, of Arizona. I um, can't remember which, which town, but they had a bodybuilding um, program there, a fit, big fitness program there. And she became one of the um, Miss Olympias in bodybuilding. And she wrote an article in Muscle and Fitness along the lines of, you know, talking about her experience as a cello player and her studies and how she finally had to make the decision to walk away from music because it was a contraction with the kind of work she had to do to sculpt her body, to make it look the way it, it, it did, to really compete at an international level as a bodybuilder. And I thought, okay, I, I, my body takes really easily to this, but that's not the direction I want to go. I love the music too much. I'm not going to um, let that go away. And just curiously, curiously enough, about 15 years later, with the magic of Facebook, I met Jackie Paisley and we became fast friends. She also recently passed away, <laughs> but, but it was really wonderful to have conversation with her about all of that and, and talk to her about her concerns. And one thing that was very interesting um, in my conversations with Jackie and something I've kind of considered is most athletic um, uh, professional athletic women are are very um, flat chested, and um, she had implants, and th this was something that was a big deal, especially in the and it's a really big deal in the bodybuilding community because the women they get you know they really take down their body fat, they become super lean, and to look you know somewhat feminine that's kind of the norm. And this was when implants were, were kind of new, when Jackie had, had this um, operation done, and she got a leak, and it made her extremely sick. And she, she battled with illness for pretty much the rest of her life. And, um, and she became an advocate against breast implants. I think it's also hard. I had a female conductor point out to me one time that even being bigger chested can interfere with power. Like they can never give as strong of a two beat as they want to, because as a man can, because there's something there. I think that's probably true for viola, violin. I know it's true for cello, but just in general, yeah, I would think that to purposefully enhance something that might interfere with with our lifestyle or our art or our income would be definitely something to think about. I love the um, athletics that you did. I've also run marathons. I also do like a lot of backpacking. I've never done scuba diving, but everything fits in line, I think, with that childhood version of you of like, I'm going to be principal viola, this idea. Musicians are very disciplined. So to do these distance activities... I think is very logical. It fits within our realm if we're willing to give the time. But I love that you surfed because, and this is about all I know about surfing, is it's a lot of patience. You have to be very in tune with the water and with yourself and deciding which waves are worth catching because not everyone is. Um, and I think maybe uh, I could see how you make this transition into yoga now because yoga is a lot of sitting with yourself and your emotions and your places of tension and, and discovering that. Uh, when did you discover yoga, I guess? I know you danced, but when did you transition into this maybe a little more peaceful mentality? There goes a drill on the roof, speaking of peace. <laughs> I've been 
timing could not have been better for that drill to come in. I mean, this is this is almost like a comedy I know, scene right, right here. Yeah. Oh my um, god. Um, I <laughs> I I had a couple of false starts with the yoga. It kind of is. I'm thinking of it, about it. It's kind of the same as the music. A couple of false starts with the music. I, and actually, going back to the music, I I had two false starts. The first one I was in second or third grade, and my dad got me a guitar for my birthday because I told him I wanted a guitar. And I'm such an outdoorsy person. At the home, I would sit by the swimming pool, and I would sit in the garden, and I would play my guitar. And yeah, I wasn't really playing, you know. But And I left it in the rain. And, you know, even though it never rains in Southern California, it happened to be that day that I left my... Guitar in the rain, violin on the bus. (laughs) And that's why my dad said, it's the end of your music career, and... Few months after I'd left it on the school bus, the violin on the school bus, my parents got a divorce. So I thought it was my fault for losing the violin that caused the divorce. As we talk about music and mental stress. (laughs) Yes, so I have, and that that was again my determination to prove him wrong. I I do have a music career, and it's not my fault that you broke up because of the violin, and I'll show you. Yeah. So then how do you move into, because now the way I see you is kind of a a lot more peaceful, just very sort of like what's going to happen instead of like, I'm going to make these things happen. How did you make this segue? Well, I'm still still in in process, actually. And um, with the the yoga false starts, um, when I've done some music traveling and touring, you come into different places and and different hotels have the community yoga class and so I've taken those and been bored out of my mind because I'm a you know contact action sport kind of person and um I have have a little background in martial arts and I've done some kickboxing at the national level (laughs) so it's just (laughs) a woman of many lives activities gotta work the body I like a sweat so in this yoga class, I'm just, you know, and I'm looking around, and they're all of the out-of-shape businessmen who, you know, have this kind of hunched-over posture, who clearly don't ever exercise. And, and I'm, I thought, you know, yoga's not for me. I can't imagine why I want to do it. And I, uh, one year, um, decided that it was time to, to make a clearing of my energy. This was... Um, about 2012 my mother died in 2008 and I fell into a little little bit of a depression Um, and I had for a few years before my mom's passing been dating a fellow that went sour and and I had in the meantime gotten involved in wine tasting and and had ambitions of being a sommelier um, which in my mind was my reasoning and excuse to drink heavily. And I was literally up to six bottles of wine a day. And I decided it was time to, you know, be around different people. And, and so I, 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 I eventually found my way to a, a brilliant man named Heath Perry, who um, is a, a fitness trainer, specializes in plyometrics, I took um, 
uh, semi-private beach workout lessons with him in Santa Monica near the pier where they have this, um, that was the original Muscle Beach, and they have all, all these adult playground toys, gymnastics type stuff, and um, learned how to use all the apparatuses there, and and had another lady join in with, with us, and we trained to do a Tough Mudder race. In the course of that training, I was still doing my triathlon trainings, my bike running, my ocean swims, and 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 stuff and had a couple of pretty good bicycle falls and hit my my hip pretty hard but I was manifesting the pain in my knee now I'd mentioned earlier that I've taken ballet a modern ballet class and I know just enough ballet to injure myself and I was out on another music tour I was out drinking and dancing with with the guys and did a, one of those prince spinning pirouettes and and I was wearing rubber sole shoes on a marley floor, which are those um, shiny black plastic floors. They look really cool, but it's really tacky, sticky. And I, I initiated a spin, and I completed the spin, but my foot didn't move. And I completely separated the ACL tendon off the bone. But because I had so, and, and I had just done the LA Marathon, and I was in, on this tour, I was doing a lot of running and stuff didn't occur to me to stretch before I went dancing that night. Um, and so I was really strong in my muscles above and below the knee. And so I thought, oh, that hurts. I'll just keep dancing and stretch it out. And my knee was literally bending backwards. Because that's what the ACL tendon stops your knee from doing. So I had another week on the tour in Japan, and I just muscled through it. <clears throat> the... the um, orthopedic surgeons who worked on me over there said you should not you, you should just stay in your hotel room and just end the tour I was like no I'm gonna finish and I'm here and they said absolutely no plane flights I got on the plane of course and and so I I just muscled through all of that and and um had the operation my doctors told me because you have this injury it's likely years down the road you're going to start having a pain in the right knee because it has to compensate for the way you're walking and everything now and so as I was um, you know faster that was a injury from 2001 so now in 2012 I'm doing this tough motor race and I'm feeling this pain incredible pain in my right knee and I'm thinking oh my god don't tell me I'm gonna have to have another knee surgery and I um, went to a chiropractor and he cracked it around and stuff and it felt relief but as with all chiropractic work, it's too shocking and jarring for the bones. The muscles don't have time to relax and reset. So they tense up and pulls everything out of alignment again. And, and so I, my plyometrics instructor recommended that I research and find somebody to treat me who specializes in muscle activation therapy, which is a combination of neuroscience and sports medicine and sports uh, physical therapy, and I found this amazing man, Jacques-Henri Taylor, who his company is called Myotopia, and he worked on me, and he said, have you injured your hip? And I, I was like, not to my knowledge, and he said, well, you're, and one leg was, you know, like two inches longer than the other, and he said, well, well when I do this, you're, you're even, and you're, and I thought, Oh, those couple of bike falls, I, each time I fell on my right hip, it hadn't even occurred to me. So I was so asymmetrical, and I was, my, I'm really strong in the hips. 
Um, so I was compensating for it in such a way that it manifested in my knee. So we fixed that. And I, I am a huge fan of Jacques and muscle activation therapy. And I can now recognize the different forms of muscle activation therapy um, when I come across it. And, and uh, did that recently when I was in Canada on a teacher training for acro yoga last summer. The directors of the teacher training had us do different modalities and we went to a gymnastics studio and worked with a guy who's a specialist in traditional gymnastics and as I was working on my my um my standing backflip with this guy the way he was talking us into all of the the different transitions I finally said do you work in muscle activation therapy he said yes I do I'm like oh my god I recognize this so it's pretty beautiful and magical and that's that awareness and that recognition is part of my yogic journey. And so I, I, I got in the course of the training with the plyometrics and getting ready for the Tough Mudder race, my plyometrics instructor, Heath, would occasionally give us yoga as one of our elements of our training. And I, I was like, wow, I've never worked you know, the little bitty hip flexor muscles and gotten the, these other small support muscles to engage with until he had us do these movements. I'm like, I'm really digging this yoga thing now. I never imagined I would. And there is a, a local studio here in town called Hot 8 Yoga. Um, and they were having a free demo class on the beach one day. And I was riding by on my bike on the bike path with my furry son here, Maximus, and um, in general, when you have uh, pets, you're not allowed on the sand on the beach, and they said, yeah, come and take the yoga class, I'm like, well, I got my dog, and they said, we'll have one of our staffers sit with your dog, and you can take class, and I was like, these people are really awesome, yeah, I'll take class, and it was an amazing class, and I loved it, and I became a member of the studio, I was fascinated I they they have in this particular um, studio they do different modalities of yoga so they have the Bikram style yoga where they literally are using all the Bikram movements um, minus two of the poses and they they um, are doing uh, uh, yin yoga which is restorative deep stretching holding for long poses which is is um, very much in alignment with Iyengar practice, and they have a quote-unquote power yoga, which um, works more the upper body, arm balances, inversions, and that's very similar to Ashtanga. And then they have the dancey, flowy kind of yogas with the music and with bar, ballet-inspired kind. And I was really digging that. And then I, I started watching YouTube, which is the quintessential teacher, um, and came across this brilliant woman who has the most beautiful speaking voice and is an incredible athlete as she's giving demonstration on, on um, video called Maria Vilela. She was the main uh, Ashtanga instructor at the studio for Yoga Works on Montana Avenue in Santa Monica. And, you know, I'm just fascinated by this woman and what she's teaching and how she's showing these movements. And now by that time, I was nowhere near flexible. I couldn't even sit like this. I'm sitting cross-legged with, with my knees both on the ground. Anytime I would sit, even on a, a, a 
bolster something lifting my hips up. My knees were always up to about my, my elbows. So I, I uh, would watch these yoga videos and think, you know, that's for somebody else's body, not for my body. And, and it's typical for people who do uh, sprinting, the contact sport, heavy lifting, these sorts of movements in general create uh, a uh, more tense more more densely muscle bound body shape and I could tell that while I felt comfortable in my body when I played my instrument I didn't have range of motion and I was susceptible to tension like we get when we have long hours of orchestra rehearsals and such I was not seeing myself at, at the time and I thank God knock on wood I'm not experiencing the Carpal tunnel, carpal tunnel and tendonitis issues that many of our colleagues have. And in general, the way you, you um, cancel out that sort of problem, which are small repetitive movement, small muscle movement action, you cancel that out by using the large muscle groups and doing some weight resistance. And all you need is your body weight for the weight resistance to have a meaningful um, experience for that. But as you know, most of our colleagues, they're afraid to even do a push-up. And so. I, I empathize with that because if you don't have the muscles yet, it can injure you. But mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of wall push-ups. Yes. Anything that begins to find activation of the muscles before you're adding maybe weight against gravity that can't be controlled yet. So, that, yeah, there are lots of options. You can just do them at home. Exactly. Exactly. And, I mean, I, I definitely use... Any furniture available, wall, chair, floor, <laughs> definitely. On my YouTube channel, I have, um, I've been adding more tutorials and one of the wrist, arm, um, stretches, warm-up strengtheners that I learned is from a, a group of aerialists from Mexico that was just magnificent. Basically, wall push-ups with your hand in eight varying positions with your fingers pointing up, out to the side, down, fingers pointing towards each other, and then the backs of your hand against the wall in those four positions and adding whatever amount of weight from your body or physically pushing into it. And then eventually you do that as a push-up, holding those hand positions. And it's tremendous for, for increasing the range of motion, activating these muscles because that thing, you, if you don't use it, you will lose it. It's so true in our business, uh, which is making music. You've got to take care of yourself. Which is a nice segue because we have talked in great length about your athletics. Where do you find time for music within all that? Like you just sort of casually mentioned, like, I was on tour. And you're a very accomplished violist. So how do you find the time for this balance between... It's not finding time, and... it's making time. Mm. Good distinction. And, and one has to be really organized. So you, if you're not used to making time in your day for all these different things you need to do, you have to have a date book and you have to schedule every minute. And, and again, YouTube being the quintessential teacher, there are so many inspirational t um, uh, speakers out there. Um, and pretty much all of them, the one common thread all of them have is organizing your schedule. 
Because if you just let time fly by, you will have no, no time to get anything accomplished. And it's really easy to procrastinate, to, to uh, you know, spend too much time on a project. Um, my feng shui master, Ken Lauer, his, his um, way of looking at organizing time is that to accomplish a task, it's going to take the same amount of time no matter what. So to, to wash your car, it's going to take 30 minutes. It's when you get your butt down there to the car with all your cleaning product, when are you going to get yourself there? Are you going to take a nap first? Are you going to read all your social media? You become more intelligent in how you go about doing these things. You don't go to the store at rush hour knowing full well that you're going to sit in traffic for an hour to travel three miles and then, you know, don't be mad. You know, if you if you can't get yourself up and out, then that's what's going to happen. I just uh, actually put up on the blog, I'm so glad you talked about this, but this week's uh, post was about uh, having a schedule as a tool for not only artistic, um, I guess, uh, a place to grow in, but also as a way of battling mental health issues like depression, that if you get out of bed feeling like you have a purpose. And there's a wonderful book I love called Daily Rituals. And it just you know, goes through as you every were saying artist. That, that's exactly what one has to have as soon as you get out of bed or maybe even before you get out of bed, if especially if you're dealing with depression, to having a daily ritual of affirmations that you either write down or state out loud or just think yeah. with unwavering focus and that's that's part of and what I, love, I do yeah I love this book because it uh it goes through only like artists only creatives whether it's like a scientist an inventor an author a painter a musician a composer and they all have a ritual that they do every day the times at which they're going to do it the times at which they're going to stop what they're going to do to release from it and uh so it's crazy to me how much we can do if we find that balance, what does your music career look like? I know right now you're playing a show at the Pantages. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned several times touring and several other casual things, like when I was a professor at San Diego State. And so what has your career trajectory sort of looked like? Where has it taken you? Well, I, as a, as a young girl um, in that community youth orchestra, the Southeast San Diego Community Orchestra, I fell in love with playing in the orchestra and I was at the time in the back of the second violins and I thought it would be an amazing dream if when I grew up I'd be able to sit in the back of the second violin section in some community orchestra. That was my goal. <laughs> and then a couple, you know, a year, two years into studying privately, now, you know, in junior high school I wanted to sit principal and I got it. And it's it goes along with the law of law of attraction. If you set your mind to something and then it it happens and it comes to you, then it just is like a snowball effect. You keep seeing that if I want this, I can have it. So this is what I want, and I'm going to continue wanting these things. And then eventually, having a more focused and intentional wish list is to wish for things where you're helping others. If you can teach it, you get, you get yourself to a completely different level of understanding that particular skill. 
And, and that was shared with me at that very young age when I was in, I was, you know, 10 and a half years old. Now, now I was 11 and a half, just a year into being in this music program with Mrs. Kelly. She recruited all the kids that were already in the program. We had to spend one-on-one time with the new kids. So not only did we have private teachers, but the kids were helping mentor the next ones coming up. And so that was a natural process for me. Um, helping others and being able to recognize that oh okay that I was struggling with this and now that I'm talking through it it's making even more sense that I I have a completely different experience when I teach something It, it ends up being just so much more magical I take what I am doing experientially to a completely different level and again it's just a generating some this amazing beautiful energy one of my inspirations i asked my my violin teacher shigeko suzaki i asked her why did she become a musician now she grew up in japan really formal family life and her parents wanted her to be a doctor or dentist and so um she was in high school in preparation for for dentist school and and she realized that that People went to the dentist when they were in pain. They didn't like the dentist. The dentist was not a person they wanted to see. But people went to concerts and they loved it. And it was transformative. And just the love that you feel when you're on stage and you're offering up this this musical offering was a completely different experience. And so that's why she went into the music. And and for me, that was just such a magical, beautiful thing. I was very lucky. I had, by the time I was studying in the, the youth orchestra, my parents were divorced. And I was able to immerse myself in something that was fun and meaningful. I didn't have a pushy stage parent because my poor mom was struggling to provide for three kids. She was a housewife, and my dad split town. He just left. He was a total deadbeat dad and she all of a sudden had to find work and start providing for her kids. So my mom was I was a latchkey kid. My mom wasn't around really and and I had to entertain myself. And I found that in the music. And so I was highly motivated and the music practice was fun. And so I started finding by the time I was in high school, a lot of these kids I played with in the other I played in many, many different community orchestras and youth orchestras in San Diego and the more competitive youth orchestras, those kids who started when they were two, three, four years old and they had the pushy stage parents and all that, they were burned out by the time they were in high school. And for me, it was like, wow, this is magic and, and I'm loving this and I can, my sister and I, we would, my, my younger sister plays cello, and we would go, um, we would ride a bus to Balboa Park and put out our instruments, and you can imagine how cute is it, these two little black girls playing violin and cello and viola and cello duets, and we come home with bank. I, I, uh, I don't know how I got off on that tangent, I'm sorry. No, it's a clear tangent of joy and love, and how do you marry that with 
with work? How does it feel then? I, your goal had always been, I want to sit in a symphony. Do you carry that joy into, I'm sitting in a pit, I'm sitting in a session, I'm fulfilling someone else's dream? Or are I'm, you still I'm like... crying every night at this show, this Phantom Returns, the Love Never Dies by Andrew Lloyd Webber, because this is one of the um, composers, one of the music sounds and and multimedia stage presentations that made me want to be a musician. When my parents were still together in 1973, my dad took the family out to see the um, first movie presentation of Jesus Christ Superstar. And I was mesmerized. And I'm still blown away that I get to make the music for this guy, you know, and supposedly, hopefully, Julie Weber will show up to one of the weeks of the show. I'm, I'm really hoping because, you know, it's pretty magical to be able to, um, for me anyway, to tell this person, you know, you were, you were a huge influence on me and thank you. So I'm, I'm eternally grateful. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I never let a day go by where I'm, I'm not grateful and I don't, you know, say up to the sky, up to the universe, to my guardian angels, just, you know, say out loud, thank you. And I think that that's why things keep cycling back. Again, it's, it's you, you give of yourself and, and you do things for, for peace, joy, happiness of others, of the environment, and that comes back to you multifold. Yeah, it's a very, we spoke earlier, it's a very entrepreneurial idea of teamwork. And yes. you give to others and they give back instead of, this is mine, yes. and I will just hold it. Um, I did want to talk a little bit, though, about what you do. I don't want to say on your own, you have partners in it, but you have a full acro yoga music routine which blows my mind because when the cello when I'm playing the cello I feel like my body is out of alignment and then I have to put the cello down and fix it and no matter what I want to do the shape of the cello will never fit with the proportion of my legs or whatever it is like I'm married to the form of this classical instrument how do you get your body into these incredible and we'll have links to this positions while you play because it's like I don't I don't want to diminish this but for people who listen it's like Lindsay Sterling but even more intense like you know we're impressed that she can dance around but you're like back bending flipping dancing it's more how, how does that work kinesthetically? Lin, Lin, Lindsay Sterling is doing a solo dance mm-hmm. and Solo dance is very different from partner dance, and I'm doing partner dance with lifting. And I do the lifting as well as my partner lifts me while I'm playing my instrument. Yeah, so it's like double partnership. Exactly. <laughs> and, and what happens when you... Well, the reason why I wanted to do this is, number one, nobody on the planet is doing partner dance while they're playing quote-unquote serious music. So I, I choreograph the um, six movements of cello suite number five um, by Hans Sebastian Bach um, with a partner and I've done a a few different choreographies with a few different partners over the years and each time I do the choreography the way we create it is I make a recording of myself and we come up with movements while the instrument is away because I literally have to relearn the piece note 
per note, note for note, as I add the different movements into it. So in general, whenever you see like ballet performance and there's a string quartet on stage and so it's a music and dance presentation, there's no real interaction. They might as well be in the orchestra pit. And the first time I really, my heart just really exploded with wanting to be a part of the dance was that um, my last year at Curtis, um, 